All right, uh, the baptism of Jesus. We are in Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, uh, verses 21 and 22. Uh, in a moment when we read together, I'm going to supplement that with <clears throat> a few verses from the Gospel of Matthew as well. Uh, for those of you that have been around for this study so far, you'll know that I haven't really reached out into the other Gospels mostly because this series is going to take long as it is and, and to continue to unpack like three or four Gospels at the same time with each trail could uh, just be a little bit too much. But this morning, because we've only got two verses in Luke, uh, I felt it good to supplement with what we see uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, which is interesting because uh, as we said at the beginning of this series, the Gospel of Luke is the longest one, the most verbose one. Uh, that and Acts uh, comprise a major, major chunk of the New Testament. But in this particular scene, in this particular uh, short passage, uh, Luke is, is very short and to the point. And so Matthew will add context to that for us. So if you would, uh, would you stand with me as we uh, read and honor God's word? Um, both of these passages will be on the screen, uh, but you can also feel free to use the Bibles there uh, in the seats. Uh, starting with Luke uh, 3, 21 and 22, and then the next page or the next slide will be Matthew 3, 13 through 17. And now it happened that when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven, you are my beloved son, and in you I am well pleased. From Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, it says this, and then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. And after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming upon him. And behold, there was a voice out of the heavens saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. You may be seated. I'm going to split this message into uh, two primary sections this morning. The first one is going to be more informational in nature, and then the second half will be application, things that we can draw specifically about baptism. But I wanted to start with just some passage context and structure. Um, as much as I would like each and every one of you to be here every week, I know that that's not the case for travel and for other reasons, and so I always think it's a good thing to have some context with the passage that we're in, especially this one as we're shifting and transitioning from uh, not really anything about Jesus but this foreshadowing to, to now we see this turn, uh, not next week, but 
the week after where we see Jesus in active ministry. And so, uh, again, if, if you've been here, a few of these will be familiar. This first one on the left-hand side is sort of the world, the known Roman uh, Empire. This would be through the first century A.D. When we read in our New Testament uh, all the world and, and went out uh, even into acts and missionary journeys and things like that, th th those colored areas are the primary areas that, that we see uh, the gospel go out. Now, specifically uh, in the gospel accounts, uh, Luke being one of them, over on the right side, you sort of see this blown up picture of this very small area. Uh, and this is a new version of the one that I've been showing you specifically to point out uh, one specific place. But you see the Dead Sea uh, on the bottom, the Sea of Galilee on the top, and, and some familiar names, Jerusalem, uh, sort of middle left, Jericho, and then off to the right with the red circle, you see Bethany beyond the Jordan. Now, Matthew or Luke doesn't mention Bethany beyond the, the Jordan, but in the Gospel of John, it's more specific about where uh, John the Baptist was baptizing folks uh, and it's this area here. You might recall a slide from weeks before where I had a shaded area that, that was called the Judean wilderness. And this is where John lived. And when he uh, came of age, around the age of 30, when his ministry started, uh, that's where the ministry was happening. A couple pictures of what this looks like. Uh, Bethany uh, by the Jordan. Here's an aerial photo of of places that the, the, the place that they've excavated on, uh, you can see, um, I don't know if you know anything about archaeology, but what would happen is they would just uh, destroy areas as new people came in and build on top. So in archaeology, what they're doing is uncovering things, digging more, uncovering things, digging more, uncovering things. And what they'll see over time is different eras of building, and that's an aerial view of what we're seeing there. A couple more close-up views. The proximity to the Jordan was close, and so you'd see springs along the river pop up. And so this is more or less what this site would have looked like in the days of John the Baptist baptizing, and specifically, they believe, where Jesus was baptized. I find these pictures, uh, especially we have such a lack of familiarity with, with the area and, and the geography and stuff like that. And for many of us, it's been decades since we've looked at uh, geography books and that sort of thing. So I find this to be helpful. All right, uh, some context and structure for uh, this passage. Uh, first, a Jewish history of baptism and and for us to under, these are important things for us to understand to sort of get the full scope and picture of, of what baptism was, sort of pre John the Baptist and, and pre Christ's baptism. And then, of course, as John the Baptist is, is doing his ministry, and, and of course, it incorporates Jesus. But it starts before the baptismal piece really starts to take full effect. Uh, this may be a, a word that you've heard before, proselyte. Uh, what that means is a Gentile convert to, to Judaism. So anybody that was a non-Jew would have been considered a Gentile. 
Uh, and over time, uh, and you'll see there examples as far back as Abram, the Exodus, and through the Babylonian captivity, which we studied a little bit with Ezra and Nehemiah some months ago, we see examples of proselytes. So uh, what that would be is someone either uh, non-religious or someone coming from another religion that for one reason or another wanted to be Jewish, okay? And so uh, there was a, a process for that to be, um, for them to become fully-fledged Jews, and I'll get to that in, in just a moment. Um, from a timing perspective, immersion in water, so baptism as we know it, didn't really become the norm for this transition until after the exile. And so that's what we studied in Ezra and Nehemiah, that the people came back. And it's really at this point as people joined Judaism that, that immersion, uh, baptism by immersion became uh, the norm. And, and what we saw was this was an extension or a sign of the ritual cleansing and purity uh, that was part of the Old Testament sacrificial system. So uh, just as you would wash up after handling animals and other kinds of things, baptism was, was an extension or a sign of that same kind of thing where there was a cleansing, a ritual cleansing uh, to, to be more pure. Now, there were some requirements to become a, a, a Jew, for a proselyte to become a Jew. And we've touched on this previously uh, but uh, three things. One was offering for sacrifice. Now that would depend on your lot in life. If you were wealthy and you had land and animals and those sorts of things, you, you might have to give two rams. If you were poor or um, you, you weren't of means, then it might just be pigeons or something like that that you would give. But they would be given over as part of the sacrificial system, it was an offering, and then they would be sacrificed. And the lifeblood from whatever those animals would be uh, would, in a sense, uh, take the place of you. It was a sacrifice. It was a sign. The second thing is circumcision. And this was instituted as part of the Passover and Exodus. But if somebody wanted to come to Judaism, they had to be circumcised. Now, uh, circumcision as an eight-day-old, as we saw with John the Baptist and Jesus. You're not remembering that. You're feeling the pain, but you don't carry that with you. But that was a physical sign of I am part of the Lord, a removal of that piece of skin and flesh. And it was a physical sign that was not removable, not changeable. It was permanent. Well, if you wanted to become a Jew as an adult, you had to be circumcised. Um, and uh, that is, I don't know, but I'm guessing is a very unpleasant experience, okay? Something that was probably not taken lightly, but this was a requirement for somebody to be a Jew, all right? So they had to be circumcised even as an adult. And third, again, after the exile was this institution of, of baptism or immersion, bodily immersion for cleansing. And so that's really where we see baptism. And then that would have been several hundred years before the time of John the Baptist. But that's what's 
leading into this passage where we're at now for John's ministry and, of course, for Jesus to be baptized. And then we get to the time of John the Baptist. And this baptism as sort of this, uh, excuse me, outward sign or this rite of passage, this ritual. And, and if you know anything about the, the, the Old Testament sacrificial system, you weren't sacrificing something once. You were doing it over and over and over again. Uh, depending on what it was, it might be weekly, monthly, yearly, or a priest would do that on behalf, but it wasn't a, a once and done kind of a thing. And so this was abused, and people would uh, be baptized, sort of fall off the wagon again, and then be baptized again, much like they would do with the sacrificial system that they grew up and knew so well. And so when John comes on the scene, this baptism shifts, okay? It's not now about just this checkbox that you do as part of all of the other rules and regulations and laws of the Old Testament. Uh, if you turn in your Bibles with me back a couple chapters, I just want to, and just a few verses, uh, unpack what John's call was, what his purpose was. And if you look at uh, chapter 1, verses 76 and 77, uh, this is before John the Baptist was born. Uh, his father, a priest, received uh, or prophesied uh, after an encounter with an angel. And this is what he says about his future son, about his future child. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. So that's a prophet of Jesus, a prophet of God. For you will go on before the Lord to make ready his ways, to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. The knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. And so there's this shift that's happening from this consistent sacrificial system where they have to do these things over and over and over again to this baptism of repentance, a recognition of a once-for-all salvation that would wipe away their sins. If we skip forward to chapter 3, this picks back up in verse 2, halfway through. It says, uh, this is uh, in the preaching of John the Baptist, and the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness, that Judean wilderness we talked about when we were showing the maps. And he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance uh, for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 8 says, Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So what that's talking about is that as we have fully and completely devoted our lives uh, to God, that we will see fruit of that. We will see a fruit of that repentance. We've been going our own way in sin. We've turned from that. And now we're seeing these new fruits that come from this turning away from sin. That's what repentance Means And so John's telling them, uh, this system over here where you could do whatever you want and then make a sacrifice for it and then it was wiped clean for a little bit, that's not good enough anymore. Times are 
changing. Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And then we skip forward a few more verses, verse 15, and he says, Now while people were in a state of expectation and all were reasoning in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ, John answered, saying to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the strap of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And it ends in verse 18 there. Uh, So as with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the gospel to the people. And so John knew that he was the forerunner to Christ, that that he was the, the herald of the king that was coming. And these people were in such a state of expectation because it had been centuries since they'd heard from Christ, centuries since there was any kind of a manifestation of angels like we read about in chapter one. And so as these things started to happen and started to occur, the expectation of the people uh, was raised and, and, and they were very aware. And so when John's doing this new form of baptism and talking about salvation and and repentance and showing fruit of that, this was a big shift. What this sounded like to the people was the prophets of old, Elijah and people like that, the Old Testament prophets. And they thought, could it be that the Christ is here? And so it's not uh, unreasonable for them to think that maybe John the Baptist was the Christ, and so they ask. But we talked about last week how John's response was humble and and obedient to the word and obedient to his call. He says, I'm not unfit to tie his sandal. One is coming that's much greater than I. And I'm baptizing with with water as a sign that you're going to be baptized. He's going to be baptizing you with the Holy Spirit. Okay, and so that's where we are, that's how we got uh, to where we are with Jesus's baptism. Let's talk a little bit, uh, some specifics about uh, Jesus's baptism uh, for a moment. There's a few things that, that we Uh, can glean from these passages in the gospel as well as some extra biblical accounts. Uh, But Jesus was unknown at this time. So he would have been about 30. Uh, He was living in a different region uh, than John the Baptist was, Galilee, and and then, of course, the wilderness. And so scripture tells us that uh, this encounter between Jesus and John the Baptist was actually the first time that they met. There's some conjecture whether or not they may have met at some point in their life, but we don't have uh, any record in Scripture that they had. And we even see uh, uh, John the Baptist in other parts of Scripture wonder himself, is this the Christ? But as we saw in our passage, there is a recognition uh, that he is different. And so what we read in that Matthew account is that John was reluctant to baptize Jesus. And I think that's a perfectly normal question for us to ask and for John the Baptist to ask. Like, this is Jesus, the Son of God, the sinless, spotless Lamb. Why would this guy need to be baptized? 
If baptism is a sign of repentance, what are we repenting for? Sin, right? Well, this is the sinless, spotless lamb. There, there's no sin to repent for. And so I think it's a, it's a, it's a good observation from John the Baptist, and, and it's a good question for us to ask is, well, why would Jesus need to be baptized? I wanted to also just draw attention to the fact that this was a public baptism. This wasn't a private ceremony between uh, John the Baptist and Jesus. Uh, this would have been, whether, it, whether or not it's those pictures that I showed you before, that is a good likeness of the kind of scenario that would have been happening. And there would have been crowds gathered that would have seen this, that, that would have heard and, and seen uh, the... the Holy Spirit descend, the voice of God, and those things. And so it was very public in nature. Uh, we could ask the question, um, if Jesus didn't sin and baptism was a sign of, of repentance and, and, and salvation, then what was happening? Why was Jesus baptized? And, and what we see in Scripture is that Philippians 2 is a good example. Uh, Philippians 2 talks about how Jesus emptied himself, came down from heaven, emptied himself. Other translations will, will say humiliated himself, condescended, so came from God from heaven to earth in uh, so many different ways, uh, as a baby, uh, as a human, in, in, in human form. And so what God demanded was righteousness and this pursuit of righteousness. What God demanded through John the Baptist, the prophet, the, the forerunner to Christ, was repentance. And so if God was requiring that of John the Baptist and he was requiring that of all of the people that were part of John's ministry, uh, Jesus as fully a man set aside uh, his divine attributes that did not give them up, set them aside, and then the Holy Spirit empowered these things as uh, Jesus progressed through his life. Uh, then he needed to conform to the same thing that everybody else did. He needed to lead and live a righteous life. That's uh, imperative uh, to his sacrifice for us that, that he would live uh, this uh, demonstrated um, life of righteousness. Uh, if we look at one passage here, or one verse here, 2 Corinthians 5.21, uh, Paul says this, he, God the Father, made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that he might become, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so that's what we're having here. And in other words, God treated Jesus 
uh, as if he had lived our sinful lives uh, and, and treated them as if, treated us as if we had lived a sinlessly perfect life. Maybe you've heard a theological term called imputed righteousness, imputation. That's what that means. It's not just that, that God, that Jesus sacrificed himself for us. Yes, he did that, but he also imputed his righteousness on us. And so when the father looks at us, he sees Christ, not who we were. Okay, that's a, a big, big uh, subject to talk about and something that if we ever study Romans, we'll talk about more. As the passage progresses, it talks about Jesus being in prayer, Jesus being in prayer. And if we look at the other accounts of this in the other Gospels, Luke's actually the only one that notes that Jesus was praying. And one of the things that we need to recognize about Jesus, and it comes through most clearly in the Gospel of Luke, is that there was unbroken uh, communication and communion with God the Father and the Holy Spirit, always and forever, all right? And, and that, was, that was never broken. Prayer was an integral part of Jesus's life. And, and if uh, that's something that maybe we don't think we, we remember Jesus praying or talking about prayer much, uh, let me just read you uh, not an exhaustive list, but, but one that, that shows us how much there was prayer. He prayed at his baptism in Luke 3.21, during his first preaching tour in Mark 1.35 and Luke 5.16, before choosing the 12 apostles in Luke 6, before feeding the 5,000 in Matthew 14, after feeding the 5,000 in Matthew 14, before feeding the 4,000 in Matthew 15, before Peter's confession of him as the Christ in Luke 9, at the transfiguration in Luke 9, uh, for some children brought to him in Matthew 19, after the prayer of the 70 in Luke 10, before giving the Lord's Prayer in Luke 11, before raising Lazarus from the dead in John 11, as he, as he faced the reality of the cross in John 12, at the Last Supper in Matthew 26, uh, for Peter in Luke 22, at Gethsemane in Matthew 26, uh, from the cross in Matthew 27 and Luke 23, with the disciples he encountered on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, at the ascension in Luke 24, and in his priestly pr prayer that we see all throughout uh, John 17. Prayer was important to Jesus. It was uh, one way that we can define his uh, life on earth and his ministry and as evidence to us that, that we ought to be connected uh, in the same way, uh, at the same sort of pace and repetition uh, that Jesus was with the Father. We ought to as well, as we can see, uh, it was important for him. Uh, the last two things that we see uh, from a structural standpoint uh, in this passage is the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and then we see this affirmation uh, from the Father. Uh, first, uh, with the anointing of the Holy Spirit, 
up to this point, this was a normal baptism. Again, Jesus uh, wasn't particularly known perhaps by John the Baptist in the moment of the baptism or shortly there before as we read in the Matthew account. But otherwise, he was an ordinary guy. And so you can imagine all of these people going through the process of baptism, and yet something was different this time, something miraculous, something unique. And we saw that Luke tells us that the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. Now, whenever we see the phrasing like that, the heavens opened up, uh, we see that God is manifesting himself in some way, shape, or form. Maybe he spoke, uh, maybe he was physically present, sometimes it was both. Uh, I, I'm reminded of Ezekiel in the Old Testament, of Stephen in Acts 7, uh, the Apostle John in Revelation 19, and then the transfiguration that we see in John 12 for some other examples of of the heavens opening and either seeing a manifestation of God, the Spirit, Jesus, uh, or, or words. And so we see the Holy Spirit descended uh, and remained. Um, I wanted to show you this gif here that we found, or whatever. I forget what Walter called it. It wasn't a gif, um, but whatever. <laughs> um, there is this thought that when we read in here that the Holy Spirit was literally a dove that descended, because uh, we like to skip over words sometimes when we're reading. Uh, but what it says is that the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form, what? Like a dove. And we are all great students of the Bible here, right? And so when we read the Bible, we don't jettison the words that we don't like or that we don't uh, maybe make sense of. Uh, we read it as it is. And so this says, like a dove. Now, if you were to close your eyes, and if you've got any familiarity with the Old Testament or angels or uh, heaven, and you closed your eyes and, and you pictured what this scene might be like, the, the, the Holy Spirit descending and then you look at this, like, that's what's in my mind's eye. A dove coming in with just the grace. It's white, so it represents purity. Like, moving in like a dove. And so this is the, the scene, like a dove, where we see the Holy Spirit descend as the heavens open up and land on Jesus. Finally, here we see, uh, as, as our passage in Luke, Luke closes this affirmation from the Father, you are my beloved Son, and in you I am well pleased. What's interesting about this passage, and if you study this, it actually doesn't occur very often in passages where we see Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and God the Father all together, Okay? And so one of our takeaways from this passage is that we see this triune God. 
the Trinity. And I've said to you before that that word is not in our Bibles. That's just a, a phrase and a word that we use to describe God as three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But we see this in this passage, this affirmation from God the Father, you are my son, I love you, and I am well pleased with you. Now, for us today, perhaps those words don't strike us like they might uh, during this time or, or in the century that really followed as Christianity began to get its legs under it. But there were all kinds of heresies then that said that there was no Holy Spirit, no Father, or that they were all three, this one God the Father that would manifest himself in different ways, that Jesus wasn't the Son of God, and there was all of these different kinds of heresies that existed back then. And we see in a simple statement just like this that God is affirming who Jesus is, that he's his Son, that he's of the same substance and entity, that they're one, and that he's well-pleased. And baptism is a sign of this. And that's what I want to close with. I want to talk about baptism specifically as it relates to our passage, or the two passages between Luke and Matthew, but how it's applicable to both you and I today. First, and this is not an exhaustive list. Obviously, we, we could go weeks just talking about, have a series on baptism. First, it's an act of humility and obedience. An act of humility and obedience. So let's think about Christ first, and then we'll think about us. So for Jesus, now it happened when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And in Matthew, we see similar phrase, for in this way it's, fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And so humility and obedience. Jesus is God. Philippians clearly says that he emptied himself, that he set his deity aside and, and everything that came with that to become like you and I. From born uh, and living life and, and, and the filth of life. For God, if we can even try to imagine uh, how holy and righteous he is, there would not be a greater act of, of humility than to lay that aside, that, that righteousness, that holiness, to become like us. The ultimate act of humility. And so we see that with Jesus, that it's an ultimate act of humility uh, but it's not just that. There's an obedience that goes along with him being humble to him emptying himself. We see that more in the, in the Matthew passage. For in this way, it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus said that he did not come to abolish the law, but what? Fulfill the law and fulfill the prophets. Okay? He was obedient to the Old Testament law. He was obedient to the, pro to the prophets. He was coming to fulfill that. Another way of saying that is he was obedient to what came before him, the teachings that came before him, the prophets that came before him. There was an obedience in saying, 
this needs to be filled, fulfilled as it was written, and I need to be baptized, just, just like you're doing with everyone else. And so for you and I, baptism is an act of humility and obedience. Some of us are going to struggle with this more than others, uh, but it's not easy to be in front of a group of people and, and be in shorts and t-shirt or a robe or whatever. You got all these people watching, you know, it's this great big moment. Some people have stage fright and, and, and fear of people and being in front of people and speaking in front of people and all of those kinds of things. And there's this humbling peace just on a very practical, pragmatic level of the act of baptism. Uh, more internal humility is a recognition that we're a sinner and that we can't save ourselves and that there is only one way for that to be, uh, that wrong to be righted. And that's through belief and confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. And a sign of that then would be baptism. And so it takes a great deal of humility uh, to come to faith and trust in Christ, to confess those sins like Peter would say. And then to be baptized, it's, it's humble. It's saying, I'm not where I need to be I'm not good enough. I'm a sinner. I need to be saved. I mean, think about when you get in an argument with your wife. Husbands, I'll pick on you. How easy is it for us to admit to our wives when we're wrong? You're going to teach the next marriage class, okay? Well, you're going to get told one way or the other, right? <laughs> I mean, something as simple as that. And it doesn't have to be a husband and wife relationship. I think of some duty at work that you were supposed to do that you didn't meet the standard somehow and admitting I didn't meet that standard, time or how it was finished or whatever. That's a hard thing to look somebody else in the eye and say, I wasn't good enough. I didn't meet the standard there. There's, a, there's just this overwhelming hu humility to it. And the obedience part is following what Scripture says. There may be someone here today or someone listening uh, that has trusted in Jesus as Lord and, and confessed their sins or repented and has not been baptized for one reason or another. You've been waiting, haven't had the opportunity you didn't see the need for it. There's all sorts of reasons. These are interesting conversations to have with people. Scripture clearly teaches us that if one is a Christian, one is, that's confessed and called on Christ as Lord, that we should be baptized, period. There, there's no gray area there. Now, that does not mean, at least as we teach it here, that one has to be baptized to be saved. We don't believe and teach that here. But there is no reason if we believe in Christ and have confessed that, that we shouldn't be baptized. 
we need to be obedient to the word of God. And, and the, the New Testament alone talks about baptism, depending on your translation, over 20 times. This is something that we're called to. This is something that we're supposed to be obedient to. If we're obedient to other parts of Scripture and their commands, then this is the same thing. And so there's humility in saying, I'm not good enough, I'm not worthy, I need a Savior. And there's obedience in, in, in saying, I trust the Lord, I confess my sins, and, and I'll be baptized as a show of that. Uh, secondly, baptism is an act of commitment and accountability, of commitment and accountability. Oh, first, let's backtrack a moment to the baptism that would have existed uh, after uh, the exile, when they came back, when this first started to be implemented. I remember that I said that just like the rest of the sacrificial system, this was something that was on repeat. Uh, they wouldn't necessarily be baptized every day or every week or every month, but there would be this repetition of baptism because it was these check boxes that the, that the uh, Old Testament Jews were doing. It was part of that system of laws. As this transitions into John's baptism and the baptism that we carry forward today, uh, baptism is an act of commitment. This is something that we do when we've accepted and called on Christ as Lord. We've confessed our sins, and, and baptism is an outward sign of that commitment that we're making uh, to God, the commitment that we're making in Christ, okay? Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17 talks about the old has gone and the new is here, and we're making a commitment uh, as that new person in Christ. We have accountability built in uh, to the act of baptism. I'm um, just drawing attention here uh, to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to convict us. The Holy Spirit lives in us when we've come to trust in the Lord. And there is built in accountability. You might call it your conscience. The Holy Spirit is guiding us to live lives in a certain way, and the expectation is, is that, that we're progressively becoming more and more like Christ. Sanctification, you've heard me use this word before. Progressively, throughout our lives, becoming more and more like Christ. The Holy Spirit helps keep us accountable. But there's a reason that baptism is also public. When a person goes under and comes up, dies and becomes alive in Christ. We are witnesses as fellow believers. Our obligation then is to help hold that new believer, that new convert, accountable. That doesn't mean we go smacking people around and all that. Maybe some people need it that way. But there's an accountability that's built in to this public profession of faith and that this outward expression of it, this act of baptism. Uh, it's not supposed to be, it's not intended to be this flippant checkbox that, oh, I'm not right with God, so I better get baptized again. That's not what it is. Remember, we're committed when we do it, and the, the accountability 
is built into it through the Holy Spirit in us and through our fellow believers, there's accountability. And third, it's a sign of identification and approval, a sign of identification and approval. And of course, we see that as both of these passages come to a close. And as a voice came out from heaven, you are my beloved son and you I am well pleased. And Matthew says, and behold, there was a voice out of the heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. We see a clear identification that Jesus is the son of God, yes? And then we see a clear affirmation, a clear approval in you who I'm well pleased. But for you and I, baptism is a sign of that same identification and approval. When we're baptized, uh, we are identified then as a follower of Christ. Uh, In other places in scripture, we were first called uh, people of the way. Maybe you've heard that before. We're identified with this new person, this new way, this new salvation, and that salvation is Christ. That's what this baptism is a sign and a representation of, is that our identification is now no longer me, no longer in myself, but I'm identified with Christ. The old has gone and the new has risen in Christ. Uh, And just as we see this affirmation and approval from God to Jesus, it's a similar sign for you and for I, for you and for me. We've come to faith, we've come to trust in the Lord and repent and confess. And as a sign of that, we've uh, taken on baptism and we've died to ourselves and we've come up out of the water, this new creation. Now God is looking at you and I as believers, remember, through that imputed righteousness. He's seeing us through the lens of Christ, not through the filth of our former self. There is no greater thing on this earth, period, to be identified with Christ and to be approved. It it seals us now, it seals us tomorrow, and it seals our eternity with Christ. This baptism is a sign of that. Now, if... I had everything together. There probably would have been a baptisms today or something like that, but um, there's not. However, it's a really important thing that, that someone has a complete understanding of what baptism is and represents because we don't do it flippantly. And so if that's not something that you've uh, taken the step toward, uh, talk to me after the service. Uh, you could email office at LSCC. .tv, and, and we would love to baptize well, after we've had a discussion and, a, and then a com- sort of a complete mutual understanding of what that is. And so if that's something that you'd like to do, I'd certainly encourage you, again, to either have a conversation with me and we'll uh, get something set up, or you could 
email Tracy as well. This is an act of humility, obedience, commitment, accountability, and it's our sign of identification and approval. This is something that all of us should be able to look at one another as brothers and sisters in Christ and know that we are baptized. Let's pray. Father, thank you for meeting with us in this place uh, this morning. Thank you for your son, who is a, not a, the continual example for us uh, to take his lead and, and follow him. Lord, this is something that you uh, had Jesus do and you expected of Jesus and Jesus fulfilled that and, and that also goes for us. Lord, so I pray if there's uh, someone that has trusted in you in the past and for whatever reason, uh, baptism has not been a part of that, Lord, I would pray that uh, you would convict their heart uh, and their spirit to pursue that, Lord, and, and we can celebrate together um, calling them, at least publicly, uh, brother or sister in Christ. We thank you for your son that makes this all possible, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Be sure to stay up to date with the latest information at lscc.tv. While you're there, click on Connect to find a way to get more involved at LSCC or learn about how to put your talents to work in one of our ministries. If you've been blessed by this podcast and call LSCC home, consider supporting LSCC financially by going to lscc.tv give. Big or small, every gift helps us in our mission to love God, love others, and be the church in our mission field, near and far. Thanks again for joining us, and we look forward to having you back next week.